We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Here we are again, and what a pleasure. Thank you very much, Hannah Kay. It's a pleasure to be, to be here in London with Umberto Eco. And um, this new book, The Prague Cemetery, I actually have the new English edition, and I have the American edition. More scary. More scary. <laughs> Will that sell more books? <laughs> we don't yet know. Anyway, um, I'm going to begin by reading something from the book and have you react to this reading. It's something that I think will give a sense to the English audience. It's discovering this book now. What you are up to when you talk about the universal form of every possible conspiracy. The word conspiracy is incredibly important here. From the picture created by Dumas, Alexandre Dumas, in reverence to the great writer, I wondered whether the Bard had not discovered in describing a single conspiracy the universal form of every possible conspiracy. Later you say, on reflection... Dumas had invented nothing. He had merely put into story form what, according to my grandfather, Abbé Baruel, had already shown. This led me to think, even then, that if I wanted to sell the story of a conspiracy, I didn't have to offer the buyer anything original, but simply something he already knew or could have found out more easily in other ways. People believe only what they already know, and this is the beauty 
of universal, I can see you mumbling it, of universal conspiracy. So how, how do conspiracies form? Yes, first of all, let me say uh, another thing. Uh, the book <coughs> was published in Italy in last October, uh, one, one year ago. And uh, in November, there was the blowing up of the, of the WikiLeaks affair. And we discovered by the documents of WikiLeaks that every secret report sent to the government so-and-so was dealing with something that had already been published by Newsweek the, the, the week before. That it was so evident. Eh? So I was right, but it was not an idea of mine. So universal conspiracy. Uh, the first who, who wrote a marvelous essay <coughs> on that uh, item was Karl uh, Popper who said that, well, the, the idea of a universal conspiracy started at the times of Homer, in which everything happened in Troy, was plotted the day before by the gods on the Olympus. And the idea of a universal conspiracy is a, a way to refuse our own responsibilities. That's why, that's why dictatorships used always the, the, the idea of a universal uh, conspiracy in order not to admit their flaws and errors and mistakes. They are they. Uh, having spent my first 10 years uh, as a young boy educating under the fascist dictatorship, there was the universal con conspiracy of the demo-pluto-judaic uh, world, you know, democracies, uh, capitalists, uh, and Jews, plus the English, who, who were very terrible people because they ate five times per day. And that was the, the horrible image presented to the poor Italians, uh, people eating five eating, eating, eating five times per day. Then only later I discovered that myself, belonging to a normal family, I, I ate uh, five times a day. In the morning, <laughs> in the morning, then they gave me something to bring in the school for about 10 o'clock, then lunch, then five o'clock, uh, and then evening. But uh, you know, the image of the fat church smoking his cigar and eating five, five times per day was a part of the universal conspiracy. Why Dumas? Why Dumas? Uh, the title of my book is The Cemetery of Prague. The uh, story of the Cemetery of Prague was published by the, by the first time in, in German by a German uh, spy, uh, Goethe spy, anti-Semite, working for secret services. And he wrote four volumes of a story very complicated called Biarritz. And at a certain point, he imagined uh, the idea of the universal uh, plot uh, made by the, the Jews coming all, from all over the world in the Prague Cemetery during the night. Yeah, I don't know if you have visited the Prague, the Prague Jewish Cemetery is marvelous to, uh, to see, but during the, the, the night it can be also uh, very disquieting. And they come from every pla place in the world and they introduce themselves. I am Rabbi Solomon from Singapore. I am Rabbi uh, so-and-so from 
from Amsterdam and so on. And they plan the conquest of the world. So I think to, to have been myself to, to, to discover it. In the Joseph Balsamo by Dumas, you've have, you have absolutely the same scene. It takes place in a German mountain. The organizer of everything is Cagliostro. The one who gather are the Freemasons from all over the world, and they present, introduce themselves. I am master, the great master so-and-so coming from Singapore. I am the great master coming from Amsterdam. And then are plotting in order to, to ruin the French monarchy. Uh, but the, the pattern was exactly the, uh, the same. Uh, because, uh, and uh, this pattern worked uh, uh, with different targets. Uh, for Dumas, it was uh, the Freemasons against uh, the king. Then for, for Eugène Su, there were the Jesuits. Uh, then in the protocols of the elders of Zion and in the book of Goethe, they were the Jews. But it can work continuously. You can invent a new universal conspiracy. Uh, tomorrow you have the empty slot. Just, as long as it's empty. And yes, you, 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 you have only to fill up uh, the slot, uh, and this, and this uh, works. But you will have to insist, universal conspiracy. Yeah. Because conspiracies exist. Probably in this moment in the city there is a group of businessmen making a plot in order to, to conquer, conquer a bank or another. That's a plot. But if a plot succeeds, it is immediately discovered. There was a plot to kill Julius Caesar and on the Ides of March it was clear. There was a plot of Catilina and Caesar denounced it in the Senate it collapses, and we knew about it. The universal conspiracy, on the contrary, is a plot which is never discovered because it has no face, no, no place, uh, is a sort of entity that nobody will never discover. So it can be used at infinitum. It's like uh, uh, when a great uh, German sociologist, Zimmel, said the most powerful secret is the empty one. Because if you have a real secret, it gives you a certain power, but this secret can be uncovered, and you'd have no more secret. But if the secret is empty, and you continue to say, ah, like, like children, I know something about you. Uh, since I'm, I'm speaking to you, I'm going to verify an etymology and see if it's correct. Does the secret originally... I don't, I don't, you don't know. know. No, I don't know that. Because at least I have all... My favorite quotation about secrets is Thomas Jefferson, who said that for two people to keep a secret, one has to be dead. <laughs> but but, but the, the notion of secret and secretion, of something... Yes, that, probably comes from... Yes, yes. And so, so a secret in and of itself cannot really contain itself. Right, it, but but if, if it is empty, if it is empty, it is exactly. That's what I was going to say. If it is empty, uh, for, so forever, what? Yes. forever, forever. So uh, I mean, just to end with secret. Also, the notion of secret being a person, 
a secretary is someone who originally... Well, the secretary is the one who keeps, keeps the your secrets. secret. Yes. And the, the, the piece of furniture, un yes. secretaire, is where you hide yes. secrets. Yes, certainly. Right, you certainly. hide little pieces of paper behind little... But other. they are discoverable They secrets. are discoverable. Discover. So and even your secretary, as it happens, usually when you go, go to prison, immediately confesses uh, everything yeah. and you are condemned uh, the is, double... This uh, is why it... No. My mother always says, you know, they can't hang you for what you don't no, say. No, now you have to, 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 to take, instead of the secretary, to have an iPad. Uh, so. Is it a secret? I, this is a, <laughs> it is a, an amazing secret. It is, um, I'm not exactly sure what it says, but it, it says that my etymology of the word secret is really wrong. I find this really disconcerting, but we, we will have to have a, a, a debate about this in a while. Um, so, universal, to come back to the notion of universal conspiracy, are, are conspiracies inevitable? No, I mean, since uni- conspiracies as the real ones, how to kill Julius Caesar, right? are, I think, well, inevitable. In the sense in which uh, human beings are always uh, fighting one against the other, so they have to plot the, the, the conquest of the ruin of an adversary. Yes, I think, except you change the human nature. The universal conspiracy uh, is absolutely indispensable in order, as I said, or as Popper said, in order to, to, to deny to yourself or to your people that we are the responsible ones for something. And to, to is the, 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 the eternal problem of the scapegoat. Somebody else is charged with the entire responsibility. An essay of yours I, I, I had an opportunity of, re, of uh, reading today is called Inventing the, the Enemy. enemy. Yes. But it, it seems to me that inventing the enemy could also be called needing the enemy. Needing and inventing. and uh, uh, Inventing is the English title, isn't it, Joe? Because... Uh, the Italian title of Costuir is building up how to construct step by step the enemy. Uh, we need uh, an enemy. Why? Why do we need enemies? For reinforcing our own identity. I tell you the story by, with which I opened the essay you are kindly quoting. I was in New York, I was talking with a taxi driver. I always talk with the taxi drivers because they give you the, 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 the temperature, uh, the general uh, temperature. And he was a Pakistani, and he was asking me, where you come from? I said, Italy. Ah, where is Italy? In Europe. Ah, what kind of language? They? English? No, no, we don't speak English. Ah, that's curious. Uh, and at a certain point, he asked, uh, what is your enemy? I said, what, what do you mean? No, the, the enemy you have since centuries and centuries you are fighting against. Uh, you are killing him and they are killing you. Your, your eternal enemies. And I said, we, we, don't have an en- we, we don't have a fixed uh, enemy for, 
la, la, in the 19th century for half a century we had Austria but then finished. Uh, by the way, we, we, we started the, the last uh, world war with one enemy and we ended it with another one. So uh, 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 we don't have enemies. And they looked at me as I was really emasculated and uh, our people was uh, well, uh, people without, uh, without any form of virility and so on and so forth. Well, by the way, so, uh, what the French call uh, l'esprit d'escalier, I reflecting afterwards, I, I realized, you know, we, we have an enemy. Sim- simply the other people have an enemy outside the border lines. We have an enemy inside the border lines. The, for 2,000 years, the Italian cities were fighting uh, each other. And even now, the Italian opposition was unable to, to win Berlusconi because they were fighting... Uh, uh, um, against uh, each other. Uh, Berlusconi fell down by his personal virtue, not because of the virtue of the opposition. Uh, but that's another, uh, is another story. Uh, every, uh, every power had, in order to keep its people united, to invent somebody which was other oak. In French, it sounds better with the capital A. Other and different. Even though slightly different, but different. And then, like uh, the Prague Cemetery, even the image of the enemy follows certain fixed uh, uh, features. Uh, It has a pattern. It's can you both? No, we, we have to confess the secret. No. No, no, no. Can you both please address the audience as they cannot hear when you look at? Uh... Okay. When you... My my no, dear no, audience. No. They, they, they my dear audience. Um, you know, basically, um, I, I have a feeling they don't like it when we look at each other. So um, I kind of like looking at you, but. Um, the people at Intelligence Square would prefer that we refrain. So, okay, um, they, 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 we, we will, don't look at, don't look at me. <laughs> okay, so um, this is a, a form of enemy. I can't look at you. Where, no, where we? From, no, what I was saying that, uh, was that from the beginning, uh, one of the first uh, pattern of the figure of the enemy is in the early years of Christianity, the Antichrist. It is curly ears, big nose, uh, strange f- feet. That's a, but uh, fundamentally, it stinks. And the same pattern is used that during the centuries uh, to to, def- to represent uh, the Muslim enemy, uh, the heretic enemy, uh, the Jewish enemy. So always the same uh, pattern to make the enemy archety- archetypically repugnant. Such that uh, uh, in every case you have to refuse it, uh, in the sense in which uh, Darwin demonstrated that uh, the face movements in order to express disgust uh, are all the same in every uh, civilization. Uh, certain movement of the of the mouth, uh, the, of the nose, and so and so forth. 
So in every civilization, there was a, a, a construction of the figure of the, of the enemy. That's all in this essay. Well, well, I, in this essay, I put down, down yeah. certain quotations of different kinds of enemies. Everybody um, from Sartre to, to James Bond, you have Ian, a fantastic yes. passage. Yes. Uh, you're a big reader of, of uh, Ian Fleming. Yes, I always I also wrote an essay on uh, on the novels of uh, Fleming, not on the movies, on the on the novels of Fleming. Yes, and Fleming is exceptional because he has the Russian enemy, the German enemy, then uh, the Chinese Doctor No, the Chinese enemy. He has a good collection until the international one, which is bluffed, who is bluffed. Of it, of, uh, but another, another feature of the enemy in uh, Fleming, it is that it's always of uncertain nationality. It's always a mixture, never a pure Englishman. So always a metek, only the effect of some blood mixture. Here in this essay, you, you, you spell it out very clearly. You say trying to understand other people means destroying the stereotype without denying or ignoring the otherness. In the Prague Cemetery, you have... Sorry if I turned my, my head because no, I no. have to listen. No, 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 no but it, it's true. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for reminding me. In the Prague Cemetery... No, tell it to me. Otherwise, I don't understand. No. It's not natural. It's not natural. It's it doesn't present, sound yeah. natural. It doesn't sound no, no, natural. Tell me. So, it, yeah. In the Prague uh, Cemetery, you have told us a story with every character being absolutely real in history except for one. That character is haunting, Simonini, and you have constructed in him, I must say, probably what you wanted to construct, namely, I mean, construct in merely in terms of invention. I mean, it is your invention. You have invented the vilest, ugliest, most horrendous, most disgusting, most despicable human being. Thank you. You're very welcome. That was my, my yeah, purpose. But, but, but why? Why give us the depiction of somebody quite as ugly but, as uh, he is? Simonini is fundamentally a forger, but also a murderer. And, and fundamentally a racist. And in the opening pages, he pronounces horrible judgments, not only against the Jews, but against the German, the, the, the French, the, the Italians, the women. Uh, and, he, he, and he uses such a horrible material, such horrible cliché, that in a way I was uh, uh, preoccupied that some reader could identify uh, him, herself, with him. So to keep the reader distant, and probably also myself distant, I had to, to make him as repugnant as you, as you said. Then 
once taking this decision, there was also the sincere pleasure of the narrator to, to, to invent a character like this uh, to make him the, 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 the most uh, immoral uh, person uh, because you, you know the story. He has the, the right patterns and he, he decides if he will sell them to, to, to the Freemasons against the Jesuits or to the Jesuits against the Freemasons or to certain point he discovers that anti-Semitism is more rentable in that historical moment and he concocts the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion and he is participated to the Dreyfus uh, affair and he makes uh, many other many other it was an invented character because for narrative reasons otherwise I would have written another academic book on that uh, story uh, I, I had to attribute to the same uh, person the deeds of many of many others so I had to invent it but uh, I insist in saying that it is the truest, the truest one of the of the old novel, uh, because in, in telling the story, I had continuously the impression of speaking of somebody that was living around me. <laughs> the world is full of uh, Simoninis, and so I was telling a story of the 19th century, but. Uh, well, it's, uh, I would like my reader to go around with uh, this novel like a Bedecker uh, visiting the world and say, oh, look, one Simonini, look, another Simonini. In every country, you can do that with a certain probability of success. Talk about, I want to, to question you a bit further about something you said in passing here, which is the pleasure you got in describing someone quite as ugly. But, yes, but uh, the, the, the literature from the beginning is full of, uh, of text in which uh, monsters, uh, dragoons, and other horrible creatures are, are described. I, I think that Shakespeare felt a great pleasure in describing Richard III or Iago or Dickens uh, was very happy to describe uh, phaging is, is a way to... to, to, to it is to, a way to, to exorcise some, some ugliness that we find. But, you know, since in a novel you, you describe the... you try to describe the world such as it is, you... You can describe beautiful characters like uh, Snow White uh, or the, the Queen. Uh, there the, are the two possibilities. Uh, usually they do both, uh, the narrator. So the, but maybe it's too, invade, too invading Simonini, always there with his uh, méchanceté, probably. Uh, and so you have the impression I, I insist with my piano pedal more on the... On the Horrible side. No, you, do, you do a very good job of making him repugnant. Mm. Also because the only two nice characters of the book, Hippolyte Nievo and Maurice Jolie, are immediately killed, as it happens uh, usually. <laughs> and so I remained uh, without, uh, without the, the, the plus pole. I had only the minus one. 
Well, you, you, just to give, give people a sense of how he is described very early on in the very first pages, all I know about the Jews is what my grandfather taught me. My childhood years were soared by their specter. When I was old enough to understand, he reminded me that the Jew, as well as being as vain as a Spaniard, ignorant as a Croat, greedy as a Levantine, ungrateful as a Maltese, insolent as a gypsy, dirty as an Englishman, unctuous as a Kalmyk, imperious as a Prussian, and as slanderous as anyone from Asti, is adulterous through uncontrollable lust, the result of circumcision which makes them more erectile with a monstrous disproportion between their dwarfish build and the thickness of their mutilated protuberance. So, he was a racist. He was a, he, yeah, he, he certainly was a racist. Um, Curious in, in some way as to the very very beginning of our conversation, why we in, in some way we are constantly believing or putting our belief in something we already believe in. Yes. And at the same time you, you said you want to create a Bedeka where people will recognize in some form or an another here the, is a the monstrous simony. Yes. Yeah, the, here is a monstrous character. So in some way, is, is a book an attempt to disfigure, to unveil the truth about ugliness? Yes. No. I didn't say that people want to believe uh, only what they already believe. I say that secret services usually do that. And this book is not written for the secret services. It's written for the normal, uh, the normal people who maybe can learn something they didn't know as yet. Um, you, you, um, early on in the book you say, what does a philosopher say? Odi ergo sum. I hate Therefore, I am. Are you hearing me? I'm sorry. I'm looking at. I'm, I'm, I hate. Therefore, I am. It is as though hatred is much stronger. For yes, the 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 one who makes uh, this sort of final discourse about hatred is Rachkovsky, yeah. the chief of the secret Russian chief, secret police that played the role even though uncertain in the construction of the protocols. But it, it is, frankly, it is after having given Rachkovsky those ideas that I, I understood better <coughs> in discussing of that with a friend, the very nature of hatred as opposed to love. Love uh, is a mutilating experience that separates you from the rest of the world. I love you, you want you love me, I don't want you to love somebody else, I don't want that somebody else loves you, so it's restricting the human uh, community to a polarity between uh, two persons, except the saints who go leeching the, 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 the leprosy, the, 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 
Dictatorial power do not invite people to love. They invite people to die against the hated enemy. So hatred is a generous, is a, and so it's easy to be maneuvered for for political for political reasons. Uh, and if not, you cannot explain because the history of mankind starts with Cain. And not with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. It starts with wars, massacres. People are hating animals. But because they are hating each other, intra, interspecific. Inter, the, the animals hate the ones of the other species. The lion eats. eats uh, Gazelles, uh, very difficult that the lion eats the lion. Huh? It's very rare. And it seems the wolf eat the wolf, but only when they are killed and they, they stop uh, eating the wolf and they don't pursue the, the, the man. But um, man is an interspecific uh, uh, conveyor of hatred. Since we're, we're talking about... It's not about... my fault. I mean, uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I... <laughs> I mean, you, you, we, we wish we could have it otherwise. But since we're talking about men um, as opposed to animals, one of the characteristics of men is that they have an incredible ability that animals may have less of, of lying. Sir, sir. And... Um, your novel is also an exploration, not only about conspiracy and paranoia, but of the extraordinary ability which men may share with novelists of telling an untruth. Now, uh, may, first of all, let me make a, a sharp distinction between lying and making fiction because making fiction is a loyal game. I pretend that the girl called Snow White existed, and you with me, you pretend to, 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 to believe me, and we play this game, and after the end of the story, you go home, and you know that Snow White did not exist. So there is no... I don't cheat you. I don't cheat you. I can make you to whip about the destiny of Snow White when she eats the, the, the apple, but for a, for a short time, after the end of the movie or the story, that's a lie. On the contrary, wants me to make you to believe the contrary of the truth. And I arrived to, to be interested in forgeries just because being interested in languages... I was interested on this specific uh, human ability to tell the contrary of the truth. You know, to lie is to tell the contrary of the truth, knowing 
that it is the contrary of the truth, otherwise it's not a lie, it's a mistake, and in order to make another one to believe the contrary of the truth. That, that are the principal features of lie already described by Seth Augustine. Okay? Now, animals tell the truth. Not consider animals able to disguise themselves in order to cheat the enemy. They are not uh, lying. They are simply endowed with certain qualities, certain color. When, when they are terrified by the enemy, they hide themselves uh, and the enemy doesn't see them. But um, this is not a lie. Uh, when, a, when, a, when a dog barks, is in order to say there is somebody outside. I have never seen a dog who barks in order to make me to believe that there is somebody outside where, while it is not true. No. So uh, that's why it is a dog and not a, not a human being. So what characterizes a language as a language, uh, sometimes we meet uh, forms of behavior we are not sure if they are a language or not, uh, if they have a semiotic nature or not. The test is, can be this behavior used in order to lie, if so, is a language. So it can be used in order to design a possible world, which is not the world of what is the case, and without informing me that it, that it is tongue-in-cheek, I am only telling a story, the story of Achilles, of Ulysses, but from Homer, from Homer on to, to make fiction means to to have a tongue in cheek and to 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 make a clander, uh, a, wink, uh, a wink, a wink to to you. Okay, that's uh, so lie uh, from lie forgery. Forgery is a form of lie, not, not the only one. We we lie every moment in our life because there are <coughs> innocent lies. Nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> you feel very well today. <laughs> Yeah. Take care. <laughs> what? You are interested in the in the in the health of that per take care. Right? But and then there are horrible lies. Okay, and forgery is a specific for a very complex, a very 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 what? Very artistic form. I was of about lying. to I was about to ask you the relationship between forgery and fiction making. Yes, I, I, thought, I thought. Let me take uh, uh, one of the paramount examples of forgery to, to which I, uh, I devoted uh, one of my novels, uh, which is Baudolino, The Letter of Prester John. Okay. In the 12th century, it appeared a letter sent by an emperor, priest by, by, by chance, a priest and king. Uh, with the idea of the sacerdos uh, and uh, imperator, uh, who describes a marvelous kingdom beyond the, the Muslim territories in Asia, but then the, the, the idea shifted and it was in Africa. In any way, very far away, a kingdom full of riches, uh, full of marvels and full... It was a beautiful story, and it was a forgery and not a piece of fiction because it presented itself as a real document sent by a real king. 
And that was one of the forgeries that produced history, let's say, in a good sense, because even Marco Polo, when exploring China, he was looking for the kingdom of Prester John. And when the, the, the kingdom shifted from Asia to Africa, it encourages the Portuguese to explore Africa. It even uh, justified, uh, in a way, the Crusades, because if there was a Christian world beyond the Muslim one, then there was a, an opportunity and a sort of religious right to, to go through. And, uh, what is the difference with a piece of fiction? A very, very thing. It is a pragmatic difference, we would say, technically speaking, is in the intention of the utterer. Not in the object. The, the, in, intention. The, object. the intention. Suppose I, I, I give you Pinocchio, and I consider you a very, a very gullible person, and they say he tells a real story that happened in in Ruritania years ago, and you believe that there was really a, a puppet with a, with a, with a mobile nose and. But, but, this, the text is always the same. It's my intention which has changed, uh, has changed the fiction into a, a forgery. Okay. No, to push it a little bit, I, I wonder if the skill involved in creating a good forgery is in any way parallel to the skill involved in writing a good piece of Yes, but that is and the I problem just, of the protocols. Yeah. That is the problem right. because it, has, it is... Uh, artistically ill-shaped. Uh, while the letter of Pastor John is very good, and you can read it as a marvelous story, even the donation of Constantine was very well done, and it was taken seriously for, for 1,500 uh, centuries. The uh, protocols, since uh, they are probably, they are not the work of Simonini, that's my novel, they are the product of a collective uh, series uh, of uh, influences, and they are a patchwork. So they are self-contradictory. In one page they say A, in the other page they say no nay. So, so they are artistically incredible. And that is one of the great mysteries, uh, how they were uh, believed so much. But... Uh, I insisted many times in saying that there are uh, books or movies able to create a cult just because they were not an harmonious form of art, but because they were out of joints. They were disconnected. The, the great case is Casablanca, who was done by, by mistake. Uh, even even the, the choice of the, of the protagonist, who you know, no, the first the first one chosen for Casablanca. And since at the end he refused, they were obliged to take, uh, to take um, uh, Humphrey Bogart. The first one was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> imagine, imagine with Ronald Reagan, Casablanca would be <laughs> a complete flop. Or with Humphrey Bogart, president of the United States, probably he <laughs> wouldn't be. He wouldn't be. And that's why um, Ingrid Bergman is, is so fascinating, because she didn't know until the end 
if she had to be in love with uh, uh, Paul Henry or with Humphrey Bogart, she didn't know. And so she was always ambiguous uh, in, in looking at both, uh, so creating a very mysterious and fascinating. So the beauty of Casablanca is that they put together 2,000 cliches without to know how to mix them or take the most cult movie, the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show which is completely out of joints, uh, and that becomes uh, cult. Why? Because you can pick up parts of it and use them without paying attention to the whole. That's why during uh, the picture horror or Casablanca in the movies, uh, young people, especially old people, pronounce the lines before the the actors because each of them knows a part of of the movie. Run on the the, the usual suspects. And you can use a part of Casablanca without paying attention to the the entire story. And the protocols are like that. You can use the, 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 the cliché of page 10 without paying attention that in page 25 there is the opposite cliché. In that moment, you are using that. But can't you do that with any work? You can illicitly do that with very complex works of art, uh, with a divine comedy. You can, you, so it's, they are disconnected works, and works that you can disconnect due to their complexity. So you can do with Dante, with Homer, probably with Petrarch, but you can do with part of Shakespeare, but uh, T.S. Eliot was very clear. He said, why Hamlet is the more fascinating, the most fascinating of his plays? Because it's completely disconnected. He, he put together different sources. He was unable, they, even uh, if there was a... Uh, um, Ingrid Bergman, she would have never known until the end if to be or, or not to be. That is the marvelous analysis made by, by Eliot apropos of Hamlet. Sings is completely disconnected and probably not even Shakespeare knew how to, to go uh, at the end. It is fascinating and Eliot says it's not interest, uh, interesting because it's beautiful but it's considered beautiful because it is interesting because it always appeals us for, for some fundamental ambiguity. So, they are disconnected works because they are bad. They are disconnected works, works because they are ambiguous, Hamlet. They are disconnectable works, like Iliad, Divine Comedy, and so on, because they are so complex uh, that it is like a wood in which you make your personal track from a for a lot, for a cabin to a cabin, and you ignore all the rest. And then there are works that, that are not out of joints. Madame Bovary is not out of joints. The Canterbury Tales are not out of joints. And out of joint means const- uh, Like a car in which uh, something starts to, to, to break itself and you <laughs> I see. The Grand Golet. Or to use your favorite English word, 
discombobulated. Yeah, discombobulating and discombobulating. No, but uh, you, you, you can be discombobulated by a beautiful and complete uh, work of art. I like uh, yeah, I mean, this. I, uh, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I was about to mention, as you, you were mentioning Homer and the rest. But um, what, what, what strikes me, though, is to come back to this notion of lying. It's the ability of human beings, in this particular case of Simonini, of the, the possibility not only of creating hoaxes, not only of creating um, forgeries, but the possibility of ending up totally and utterly and profoundly believing the lies we create so that we create another reality yeah. that becomes... And it reminded me of a, a passage which I don't know if you had to mind in Adolphe. There's a wonderful line in Benjamin Constant where he says, Nous sommes des êtres tellement bizarres, tellement étranges que les sentiments que nous feignons nous finissons par les Oulipa. éprouver. We are such strange, bizarre... I'm sorry, I had to say it in French first. But we ask now, I'll speak to you, we're such strange and bizarre human beings, that the feelings we believe, we pretend to have, we end up by feeling them. Yes, that's and, 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 and Simonini at a certain moment uh, starts to believe what he himself has uh, forged. Right. Yes. Uh, and uh, cannot understand why people don't believe what it has created. But then there is people... Simonini is not so... Simonini makes forgeries for money. But there are, on the, on the contrary, people who have the real aesthetic pleasure of spending the entire life uh, as a lie. Leo Taxi. Yeah, Taxi, I was taxi. about to mention it. Many readers be, be, believe I am a genius because I invented Leo Taxi. No, Leo Taxi really existed and did more and more of what uh, I, I succeed in telling in, in those few, uh, few pages. He started his activity by inventing the sharks on the Gulf of Marseille, moving all the French Navy to, to, to chase the sharks. Then in Geneva, he invented the uh, submerged city, uh, bringing scholars uh, to explore the lake. Uh, to then he started a series of anti-clerical um, tracks and uh, making flourishing industry against the church but then he became Catholic and he uh, produced anti-Masonic uh, uh, leaflets uh, and books but at the same time his wife was always selling under the counter the anti-clerical uh, books because it remained a certain quantity of books to be to be sold that at a certain moment he declared that all his denouncing of the Masonic uh, uh, hoaxes was an hoax of himself in order to baffle the Catholics uh, and in doing that he lost a lot of money. So you understand that he, a lot, an entire production of rentable books, it means that he did it for the pleasure, for the pleasure of being always different from, from itself, even at the cost of ruining himself. He's an incredible guy. So he's, he's ama amazingly Romanesque. He's amazingly... He's amazingly Romanesque. He's, he's, he couldn't be a better invention even if you invented him. 
Yes, but that, that's true, always true. Why I, I write mostly historical novels? Because what you find in real history, even in the history of science, uh, so is more Romanesque than what you can invent. Life uh, uh, has more fantasy and imagination than uh, fiction. Can, could you invent a man like Berlusconi? <laughs> Say more. No, no. <laughs> okay. So, uh, life uh, is, uh, I don't know, in the, the island of the day before, there is a, an episode that I think is pretty comic because a German Jesuit, in order to observe upon a ship the movements of the satellites of Jupiter constructs an enormous basin with oil inside and inside on the oil another basin and on the basin a sort of pedestal and he sits there and he had a sort of helm uh, with a telescope and so he believes he can observe the satellites without being disturbed by the movement of the ship because the oil compensated at, at a certain point there is something this machine was invented by Galileo who tried desperately to solve the idea to everybody and everybody was smart enough to, to, to refuse it so a genius like Galileo was also able to imagine absolute stupidity. That's, nobody, if somebody had invented the thing like that and attributed it to Galileo, there would be a scandal. Oh, oh Galileo. Yes, he did that. Um, what, what strikes me in somebody like Taxil is, and also in Simonini, is how utterly shameless they are. Yes, the, the and, real, and, and, the, and the, the real vice is the uh, absence of shame, yes. It's endless. Endless, yes. Not, how, do you, how do you live a life made of what one might call such fantasy or so many intricate li lies? Are you asking this to me or to Simonini? <laughs> um, both. No, no, I, full of shame, a lot of... No, I think that shame is one of the instruments of morality. Uh, you, don't, you don't do something evil uh, fundamentally because you feel the shame of doing that. Or if not fundamentally, also because you can avoid doing evil because you think that God has uh, prohibited it or that... But shame is a, is a sort of control of our behavior. The miserable people, and we know many of them still around us, are shameless. They are doing incredible things without any shame. Which is the, yeah. the, the principal feature of prostitution. Prostitution means, female or male prostitution, means not to feel the shame of what they're doing. Because they're doing it overtly, openly, without shame. Okay. Or the other, even if they do something uh, reproachable, they try to do it uh, 
in their room, the prostitute, male or female, has no shame. Okay. In, in the case of, of both Taxila and Simonini, you have people who believe are shameless and believe powerfully in their lies. And I mean, it's a, a very strange thing to say that you believe in your lies. But in, in some way, what happens is there is no notion anymore of what, what is true and what is false. Well, but I think that everybody sometimes being obliged for some reason... For social uh, reasons. For social reasons uh, to lie at a certain moment believes in, and perhaps as the lie was, uh, was true. is also a sort of defense. Uh, uh, I think it... I, I had to write another novel to explain this this problem, there are certain, uh, to believe his or her own lies is, I think it's very normal. I have a friend, I have a friend who has a daughter, a very intelligent uh, girl, now women with with two children, and uh, she became a psychiatrist. And my friend, for strange reason, didn't like to have a, 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 a daughter psychiatrist, and he told that she was a psychoanalyst. It seemed more seems more elegant. No? So my, my, my daughter is a psychoanalyst. Was talking with, with the daughter, so oh, you are a psycho, psychoanalyst. No, my patients bark. I have really mad people to cure every day, barking people. So, and my father doesn't want to, to know it. Now, my friends keeps going and believing that his, his, uh, his daughter is a psychoanalyst. But they, in, they have yeah. the advantage of living in two different parts of the world. And so he's not there to control what uh, his what daughter, daughter does. That, 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 that. But, um, but I'm interested in this phenomenon which you describe of how we tell stories about our, li- our lives and how we also omit what one might call an excluding view of the self and the cumulative view of the self. One where we sort of erase, as it were, parts of our existence and tell a story, a biography of our own self, of our former self, where we shed away part of our life. Yes, this is another story, but it has to be with lying because uh, there are people like me, for instance, that are cumulative of their past. I'll post, if you want. And so I, I try always to, to meet my friends of the, of, the, of the primary schools, so I keep uh, contacts with, uh, with all my, my old world. I write uh, Happy Christmas to all the girls of my life every year. And I want to keep this continuity of, of my life. There are other people who are uh, living their life as an artichoke, peeling it, 
step by step. They want to remember only the immediate past. If you tell them, but you were, the, ah, no, 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 no. They deny their own past, which is a form of self-lying, which is not a lie. It's a, it's a removal. It's a removal. Why? I, I don't know. I don't know, but I know people like, uh, like that, the artichoke-oriented people. One of the phenomenons of the Protocol of the Elders of Zion is that though it was denounced, actually, in London in 1921, in the Times of London, 1921, it just doesn't go away. No, it was more and more believed. What, what is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to understand this phenomenon. No, it's not so difficult. Uh, uh, I tell always the story of Nesta Webster, an anti-Semite uh, English woman who wrote a book on secret societies, but that book was obviously on the universal conspiracy, and he wrote it in 24, so he, she already knew that uh, it was a, a, a hoax. And at the end, she said, okay, okay, okay. It was a forgery. But since it says exactly what the Jews think, it is true. So there are certain texts that do not serve to create prejudice, but to reinforce prejudice. The uh, protocol, out of joint such as it is, is very useful to, useful to reinforce your previous pressure. You can pick up, uh, you can pick up in a detail according, I mean, the protocols works as the uh, discourse of the used cars uh, vendor. Hmm? Do, you, do you remember that during a, a political campaign, against Nixon, they said, would you buy a used car from that man? No, it means that the one who, who said... Is that where it comes from? Eh? That's where that expression comes from? Eh? Is that where that expression comes from? Yes. Would you buy a car from that eh? man? No, you are asking me... Yeah. No, no, I remember... I know. No, I remember that it was used in... In the United States, uh, for the, the, the two definitions of Nixon were would you buy a used car by that man? And the other is a man who enters after you in a revolving door and gets out first, which is marvelous uh, as a Image, definition. Yeah. Well, okay. The uh, used car vendors uh, tells you, oh, that's a fantastic car because it's able to make 200 miles per hour. He is a, is a tiger. And you say, yeah, but I have my children. Ah, he's the calmest, uh, the, 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 the more, more family-oriented car. You can go slowly, it's comfortable. And he used the both the arguments, and you have only to pick up the one that reinforces your prejudice, because if you are there, it is already because you wanted that car, and, and, and you wanted only to be convinced. I, I, had, I had such a, a marvelous occasion of, uh, of being with a, a car salesman in, in America once with my, my father, who for some reason has always loved American cars, and He's quite deaf. He doesn't hear very well. 
And in America, the, the custom is, you know, for you, I'll give, you, I'll give it to you for $12,000. And my father turned to me and said, what did he say? And I said, for you, he will give it for $12,000. And then the man, you know, it, it, then he would say, well, in, in fact, I'll give it to you for eleven. And then I, my father said, what did he say? And then he said, for you, he'll give it. And we undid, I mean, peeling away, we undid that man absolutely completely. He didn't anymore know any of his tricks because they didn't work. Here, about two, two months ago, I had occasion in New York to interview the filmmaker Errol Morris, who wrote a book recently called Believing is Seeing. And this is what he says, and I think it's very apropos of, of what you've written. He says, if we want to believe something, then we often find a way to do so, regardless of evidence to the contrary. Believing is seeing, and not the other way around. Oh, yes. Remember, Proust uh, as everybody... Uh, knows that uh, Odette de Crecy has a, has a weak morality and Swan is the only one who wants to believe that it is untrue. It goes uh, through two volumes so, of the research. It is untouched by, by every revelation evidence. of evidence. Of people. No, he wants to believe that Odette is a, is a perfect woman. Is that because uh, love makes us blind? Yes, usually, but also hatred. I would like to go to something that isn't addressed enough, which is the structure of the book, the three voices. I don't want you to reveal too much, because I want the reader to reveal the water. Yes, uh, it was a friend of mine, Claudio Magris, that interviewing me said, but it's very strange that people speak of your book always according, uh, apropos of the content of the story and not apropos of the structure. It is more than evident uh, because the content is so violent and so evident that people is interested by that. Uh, second, in order to understand uh, the, the, the structure of a complex book, uh, sometimes you need some years. That's why the immediate reviews cannot... For because uh, the reviewer is obliged to read the book in three days and then to write the articles while to, 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 to explore the structure, the inner structure of a book, you need uh, three, four, five, five readings. In this book, I was uh, taken by, by a triple, three, 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 problem, three structural problems because they are first... Uh, Vertically speaking, three voices. There are the journal of Simonini. There are the journal of the Abbot. <coughs> the La Piccola, the reader doesn't, is never sure if they are the same person with, with a split personality of if they are two persons. Also because at a certain moment there is another Abbot de La Piccola entering the story. And the narrator. The narrators should represent a meta-narrative instance, so to speak. But it is so very prudently. In other cases, I use the meta-narrative narrator, as in the island of the day before, who always judges what is happening and what the 
character says or do. He cannot accept that they are speaking in a baroque way. And so the, there is a sort of continuous quarrel between the narrator and these uh, and the characters. Here, the narrator has only uh, a, a summary function uh, in order not to 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 publish 40 years of a journal, and he, he, he summarizes a certain element. But in doing that, he pronounces certain judgments on, on, on the character. So is the three levels uh, vertical structure. Then there is an horizontal structure by which there are the events known to the narrator, there are the events known to Simonini, who ignores what happens to Della Piccolo, the events known to Della Piccolo ignores what happens to Simonini at, at the end. And then there is, let's say, a transversal structure made by the flashback and flash forwards. So it was a great, very tiring also for me to, to, to keep under control all those uh, complex uh, uh, structures. And since in six years, I was also obliged to, to move certain episodes from the last chapter to the first. Uh, I, I, at a certain point, I lose, I've lost the, 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 the sense of what was happening. And happily, one of my translators, and before I had to publish the Italian uh, edition, that stopped. Because that, in that chapter, Simonini goes down in the cellar and found three corpses. But two of them will be killed only later. <laughs> oh my God, that's, that's true. I had moved the chapter and forget it. Uh, just because of the complexity of this um, tribal structure. Yeah. That's why I put at the end those explanations as I was, uh, as I was toward Gilbert, uh, making a sort of bedecker for the Ulysses. <laughs> but you, you create difficulties for yourself. Yes. Difficult for myself and for the reader. Because uh, the easiest of my novels, contemporary times, not erudition, plain language, was the mysterious flame of Queen Loana. It was the one which I sold less. So probably I, I write for a bunch of masochists. <laughs> uh, this is the very first time that anyone believes that complexity sells better. Yes, I think so, because people is tired by simplicity. They eat, people is sold every day for simple things. One thing one should explain before people actually read your book is that the three voices also have three different typesets. Well, this is a, an indulgent uh, move on my part to make it uh, easier for the reader. Sometimes I feel Sometimes a certain feel complicity and compassion feel... for, for the reader. <laughs> I, I think that's rather kind of you. Um, I, I have to say your wife uh, read the book in its first iteration where you didn't do that, where the typeset hadn't yet been set, as it were, and that was very difficult. It was extremely difficult to follow. Yes, the, I think so. Yeah. So do you do this 
in the same way with the illustrations in the book. Is there other illustrations there to ease the reading? Or uh, no, are they, uh, they, or are they uh, a, a kind of a clin d'oeil, since you were talking about the wind? The illustration have uh, uh, several functions. Several right? functions. One is that, uh, since my book is a little imitating the popular novel of the 19th century, all those novels were illustrated. Okay. And not only the popular one, all the novels of the 19th century and the one of, of, the, of the 18th century were illustrated from the, from, from the beginning. And so, and second is that I, I like to illustrate the books. My previous one, Queen Loana, is completely illustrated. And the Previous one have always a map, uh, diagram, something because I believe uh, that. Uh, so when s somebody said, "Ah, you imitate Sebald," no, I started it with the name of the rose, where there is the, the, the map of the abbey. Uh, probably because I worked in a publishing house making illustrated books, and so I, I feel this sort of multimedia, multimedia uh, pleasure. The illustration have the function, at the first uh, glance, to give the reader that I am telling a fictional story, because they are clearly illustration coming from the books of that era, that epoch. But suddenly the, the, the reader jumps over a real document. It is one page of the... La Libre Parole of Drummond, a portrait. A horrible, uh, and so the reader says, oh my God, so it, it was true. It was not a, a story. It was true. So is this combabulated? So it's an, an ambivalence. And, uh, he feels an ambivalent, ambivalent uh, feeling. Yes, he doesn't know how much to believe it or not. And so step by step, he starts to believe that everything was true. Even though, because sometimes he meets names that are so recognizable, like Garibaldi or Napoleon III of the Israeli, that obviously he, he, the reader understands that it is dealing with uh, with real uh, real events. Or Drummond? No, Drummond is ignored by. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, you, you cannot stop on the street. Uh, Frenchmen asking, do you, do you know Drummond? They don't know Drummond. And, and less, uh, no Taxil. Taxil was completely forgotten at a certain uh, moment. No, Drummond, not. Only, only the specialist, okay, because he was dominating the French politics also in L'Affaire Dreyfus and so on. Uh, the, 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 Panama, the Panama scandal, uh, he was having big influence as an anti-Semitic reactionary uh, writer with an important uh, journal, uh, magazine, and so on and so forth. Then he became a new uh, uh, um, quotidiano. Uh, okay, he became a daily, a daily paper, but um, it has been forgotten doing more. But it was an interesting uh, person. The illustrations, to go back to them for a moment, is this also a way, because these, these books mattered to you as a child, um, to return in some way to an earlier self? Well, certainly. 
that was more evident with the Queen Loana, in which uh, obviously I assembled all the memories of my of my childhood. Uh, all the images that are there were from the 30s to the 40s and no more. So that was really my my lost and and reconquered past. Here it was the pleasure of using all this material that fascinated me when I was a young reader, all the adventures. Uh, okay. Do you mind particular? Ah, but even the things that are not there, like Jules Verne or Salgari. And so the fictional material is, comes from early, early readings. Are you still playing an instrument? Unfortunately, I played the too many uh, of them. Uh, every kind of instrument for a short time, but uh, if you remember in the Foucault's Pendulum, there is the story of a young man with a trumpet. The trumpet played a very important uh, role in my imagination during, during the adolescence, childhood adolescence, uh, and even uh, it's my Madeleine. It's my Madeleine. Your trumpet is your Madeleine. Yes. Madeleine, pas trompé dans la tueule, but trumpet dans la tueule. But since 50 years, I am playing the, the block flute, the, the soprano recorder. I play very badly uh, professional professional scores. There are people who, who play perfectly reduced uh, scores for for amateur. No, I play badly uh, the, the professional one. So again, you you challenge yourself. Oh yes, if not, uh, there is no no amusement. Eh? You have created a very ambitious novel here. Do you agree with that comment? I think that the most stupid writer when starting writing believes to become Homer. <laughs> then most of them do not succeed in reaching this point. But it is... Once always, even though, to be sincere, with that book I was more uncertain than with the previous one. Yeah, I was not it. sure that it could work this way, so that it happened what I did only at the beginning with the, beginning with the name of the rose, that I gave it to read to at least ten persons. I didn't, I didn't do that with the other, with the other books. With the name of the rose, it was the first time, uh, so I wanted to have some uh, reactions. Uh, and by they the were, in general, negative. Uh, so. and, uh, really? But the, the, the friends say, oh, no, this is too long. That maybe, uh, oh, well, nice, yes. <laughs> it can make 2,000 copies. So you've, you've learned not to take the comments of your friends seriously? I think that the writer has never to take the comment seriously. If not, he's, uh, he, he loses his balance, mental balance, because uh, they, are, they are so controversial. 
I was uh, educated by the story uh, that my grandmother told me of the old man with the little child and, uh, and the donkey. And uh, they were going, and uh, the child said, Grandfather, you are so old and so mount, uh, on the, mount on the donkey. And people will say, look, that man who is killing the donkey and making the young boy to, to walk. And uh, they heard it and said, decide to put the child on the donkey. And people said, look, that uh, the, how ego, ego, egoistical is the, 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 the child, uh, why the poor man. So they decide to, to mount both of the donkey. And they say, look. So they decide to leave the donkey free and to, to walk both. And people said, how stupid they are. They have a donkey and they don't use it. And to write a book is the same situation. Yeah. At a certain point to say, okay, I do what I want. And but you don't it. only do what you want. Because also, in a, by, by ambition, I mean you also create situations where your characters have to encounter, for instance, Freud. Now, this is another... It's a very interesting... Freud, F-R-O-I-D-E. Yes, it's written like that, because if it were written in the right way, the French would have said Freud. (laughs) And since Simonini meets Freud in Paris, but he doesn't see his name written, but Freud, so he writes it as a French could write it in order to pronounce it Freud and not, uh, and not uh, Freud. Well, we, we, you are asking another, another question, which, uh, yes, we, 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 we said before, and I avoid the, the, the answer, I always put uh, in my novels constrictions, situations that I am not obliged to put there and then obliged me to change radically the whole story. Example, in Baudolino, I decided that it had to start with the siege of Constantinople, which is a sort of suicide, because Baudolino writes, uh, in my fiction, the letter of Prester John at the middle of the 12th century. The the siege of Constantinople is 1204, so I had the 45 years in which I didn't know what to do and what to make Baldolino to do. Why I want to put Constantinople? Because I had never visited Constantinople. And so I, since I am not a tourist, I, I needed an alibi to go to Constantinople. And the book to write was a, a, an alibi. And so I went to Constantinople. And, so, and I used Constantinople. But I didn't know what to make what Baudolino had to do in those 54 years you know, that to, before going as well to, in the search of the kingdom of Prester John and returning to stop in Constantinople. And so I had to invent a, a, a lot of reason for delaying its departure. And it created the spasm of desire in Baudolino, I hope, in some readers, and certainly in the structure of the novel. In this novel, I wanted Simonini to visit the, the Salpetriere Hospital in Paris, where Charcot 
was uh, at that time the great uh, brilliant mind. Why? Because I have been, been always interested by Chaco, but I didn't have time to, to, to read something about him. And so, in order to write a novel, he had six years at my disposal and could pile up books on Chaco and his researches of hysteria. That gave me a lot of material to create two cases of double personality, split personality. And in the same years in which for Baudolino arriving to Paris go to the, goes to the Salpetriere, there was Freud visiting Charcot. So why not to put Freud in the, in the story? Simonini, not Baudolino. Baudolino yeah, Simonini. Interesting. And uh, Freud, what was interesting that Freud at that time was thinking only to his fiancée, uh, he, he was not interested in sexual interpretation. He had not invented the psychoanalysis. He was mainly interested in cocaine. He, he, he believed that cocaine could, could cure every disease, even, uh, even chi, children's disease. There is this marvelous image. I, I found by mere chance on internet uh, in which there is a real advertising cocaine for children to cure, to take drops. They are to take drops, cocaine. Instantaneous cure. For, and they are to plain children. So cocaine was given to children. And so it was interesting to make uh, Freud to, to speak about his fancies. Uh, and I was... Uh, entitled to, to make him to say, oh, I think that I will be never interested in sex, in studying, in studying psychiatric disease, because it's, it's different stories and all like this. And I saw, I saw he met uh, Freud, Dr. I've, Freud. I've, I've always wondered, and I want to ask you now in public, how important Ulipo, and particularly some writers like Georges Perec were for you? Because in a way... I recognize in you, in this particular instance, a kind of Perec move. You make me a, a strange question, because I met the Ulipo very early in 61, when in a congress I met uh, François Le Lyonnais, Yves Berger, they started telling me about Ulipo. And then I translated Exercice de Style by Queneau. So it was really inside the uh, Ulipod, and I was a good friend of Calvino, and Calvino was concerned with Ulipo, and so on. So I should say the last one I came across was just Perec. And the, just two days ago in Toronto, a friend of mine was wasted a lot of his time in writing about me, is uh, told me that he's on the verge of finishing a long essay, essay in which he shows the continuous parallelism between my work and Perec. And it's, so I would say, of the people of Ulipo, Perec was the one who has less influenced me. But it seems that, you know, they are also uh, unconscious uh, uh, influence. 
you are influenced by books you have read 50 years before. Once one of my friends, after the name of the rose, said, but you should have been influenced by Dmitry Mieroskovsky. It's like taxi. Nobody knows any longer who he was. He was a decadent Russian writer between the end of the beginning of the 20th century, wrote historical books on Leonardo, Julian the Apostate, and so on. I read Mieroskovsky at the age of 12. So, you did? Pro- yes. So probably uh, a certain influence worked, uh, or maybe not, it was my friend. But sometime I discovered to be largely influenced by book I had not read at all. But I mean, and this probably in closing, this is... We, are, we yeah. have discussed uh, we have. three I, years ago I, with three, Bayard. We had this, this conversation at, at the library about three years ago. If you haven't read this book, I highly recommend it, or maybe you don't need to read it. So Pierre, Bayard, Bayard, Bayard who's a was written a book on the fact that we are speaking continuously and competently of the books we have not read. So it's, the book is called How to Talk About Books You Haven't Read. Um, and there is a chapter on Umberto Eco. And in my impishness, I believed it would be interesting to bring Umberto Eco together with Pierre Bayard. And I remember the very first line I uttered. You corrected me immediately. I won't make that mistake again. I said, Umberto Eco, who has a library of, uh, library of 30,000 books, you said no, fifty thousand. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, and this this phenomenon. I am a teacher. Yeah, I mean, and this phenomenon of the books beckoning. I mean, the nearly what what Benjamin talks about when he talks about the sex appeal of the inanimate. This is something you're under the influence greatly when you walk around your library. Describe Umberto Eco walking and looking at his shelves. No, it gives uh, you the sense of confidence and continuity, not only with your past, but with the universal past. Okay, you, you feel very confident, saying that all the wisdom you need is there. You couldn't, fa- you couldn't feel the same feeling having a box full of USB. Uh, that, that, would be, that would be different. Uh, the same way in which it can be moving to find in your cellar uh, the edition of Pinocchio you read uh, at the age of six with your uh, scribbles, uh, the, 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 the mark of your thumbs, uh, and if you found the uh, iPad or USB of Pinocchio, you, you, you didn't feel any, any emotion. So it, it's very beautiful to, to walk around the the corridors of your library. But the typical case is the one in which uh, uh, you have not read the books in your library. That is the majority of of the books. Otherwise, why to keep a library only to store the books you have already read? No, you have a library as a place in which you can find every time you need the book to, to read. And it happens that uh, certain books are looking at you for years and years with a sort of reproach, uh, and you feel and you feel embarrassed and ashamed. And finally, 
after 30 years, you have that book on your shelf. You pick it up, you open it, start reading, even though that, and you discover that you knew perfectly what he was saying. Reasons. One is a little, uh, a little occultistic, and since I believe I, be, I belong to the skeptical association against uh, abnormal experiences. But it seems that something passes by the book through your fingers to your brain, and so you absorb a part of the wisdom of the book. The second one is that every time in 30 years you picked up the book, even though only for, 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 for polishing it or to displace it to, to find another book, without realizing it, you open it and you had some, you read something. And the third reason, the, the most scientific, that in those 30 years, you have read many other books that were speaking of, of that one. And so when you open it, uh, is, you discover. So at a certain moment, you have the impression to have read all of your books, which is false, but it's very consoling. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.